Tune in to the Onyx Report, a bi-weekly analysis of how black males of all stripes experience American society and navigate misandry. Join me, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State and founder of the concept of black masculinism to examine the issues that impact the lives of black males. From history to politics, media to policy, and spirituality to economics, join me to explore the hidden stories of black men and boys and we'll discern them from the stories imposed on them. Listen to the Onyx Report live on innerlightradio.com every first and third Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out episodes on demand at your convenience on my website at www.thassanjohnson.com. Also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash dr.hassanj, Twitter at twitter.com slash lordhassan, YouTube at Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, and finally, my Black Masculinist blog at www.newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society. I'm Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male advocate, and black male studies scholar. In the program, we examine current events while engaging concepts ranging from institutionalized anti-black misandry to gynocentrism from a black masculinist perspective. Our goal is to remind people of black men's humanity. Call in after a half hour to the show at 310-928-7733. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to the Onyx Report. Um, as you know, our show is uh, first and third Wednesdays of each month, so sometimes there'll be a little gap uh, between episodes, and this is our first time back since last month. Uh, today is a special episode. Got a good brother in the house that I uh, will introduce you to in a moment. Um, we'll be examining his work and, and hearing from him about what his research has yielded. Um, but just real quick, I wanted to kind of give people an update on not only uh, myself, but uh, but current events. Uh, as this is summer, and I'm, I'm not quite back to teaching just yet, finished a summer class, but had a little bit of a break, had a chance to go down to Los Angeles and check out a couple of concerts, uh, one Michelle and Degiacello and the other being Parliament Funkadelic, and of course, uh, the almost 80-year-old George Clinton, phenomenal show. Um, those of you following me on Facebook and Twitter, you know, know I post my pictures and videos of such, and driving down to the show, one of the things I had a chance to see in L.A., which is very reminiscent of what I've seen here in Fresno, and of course is happening pretty much across the country, is the widespread homelessness that's going on. So as I had a chance to drive down to the Greek theater um, to see George Clinton, I took some pictures of, you know, some of the tent cities or, you know, tent neighborhoods in this instance where you see, you know, the numbers of homeless people out there. And according to some reports, 
Uh, black men constitute about 2% of Los Angeles, but over 60% of the homeless. So some of the more recent reports about hepatitis uh, outbreaks in LA amongst the homeless are that much more telling because of some of what we're seeing. So even you know, when you're, you're, you're trying to get a, you know, a break from it all, you see everything we're talking about happening all around you. Um, and it's incredibly uh, disheartening, uh, takes you off, uh, off guard in many instances. But I do want to promote uh, us paying attention specifically to the plight of black males, because I think we've learned to sweep these things under the rug. Even in graduate school, much of you know, many of the questions I would ask pertaining to black males, you know, would just kind of be treated with um, that's just par for the course. That's just accepted. It's not really focused on to any great extent. At least that was my graduate experience. I'm not saying that that's the case for everybody. But as I've learned to kind of look more closely, I find that there's usually something that's not part of the narrative. So, you know, I want to urge you. Uh, to definitely communicate with me on uh, social media and, and definitely update me or give me information that you run across regarding uh, what you may be seeing uh, with black males. Um, you'll also notice uh, I want to do a, a little shout out to a brother named Guy Bryant, in New York, who has fostered, uh, given foster care to over 50 black males. Uh, that is definitely the kind of support that, uh, you know, uh, we would like to see more of. Uh, so special shout out to him. And these are just some of the things that you may see um, on my social media just to kind of put that out there. Um, you can find that on Lord Hassan on face on a, a Twitter or Dr. T. Hassan Johnson on uh, Facebook. Also, um, uh, you'll see some reports is a, a recent report um, having to do with the rates that black men are arrested in regard to white men. It's about two and a half times more. Um, there's also just in a quick announcement, and I'm just shooting through a few bullet points here just to kind of update people uh, about what I find important. The uh, film on Brian Banks comes out this week, August 9th, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely go check that out. Um, the story of Brian Banks, if you haven't heard it, is actually quite powerful. Um, high school football phenom accused of rape uh, went to jail for about five years uh, before being able to provide evidence from his accuser that he had not actually committed the rape, but nonetheless had lost out on an opportunity to go to the NFL uh, at that time. Uh, and so the film uh, purportedly deals with his experience. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, an article I read said that they changed the name of the accuser in the film. There's not, I, I don't know if there's a great deal of emphasis on her, especially considering that even in the trailer, she wasn't shown at all. But nonetheless, support the film, check out Brian Banks's experience and definitely read something outside of watching the film on it uh, because it's incredibly important. Uh, uh, lastly, uh, there's a quick article you might want to check out or an interview really with um, Black Panther, former Black Panther and Angola three member Albert Woodfox, who spent 43 years in solitary confinement. Definitely something you want to check out. Um, and, and maybe one of the questions we might ask our guests about the impact of what 43 years in solitary confinement can, you know, can do. And the reason for that is our guest is a, a psychologist. This is a brother I had a chance to meet in person some years ago, and we've kept track of each other online uh, for several years. Uh, his name is Dr. Oshan Gadsden. 
and he's an applied psychologist, public scholar, and psychoanalytically trained and focused psychotherapist. He currently holds an appointment as, as an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Norfolk State University, contributing faculty member and research mentor in the APA-accredited PhD Clinical Psychology Virginia Consortium Program. He's also an adjunct clinical instructor in the Steinhardt School of Education at NYU. Uh, his scholarship and professional work serve traditionally and marginalized my marginalized minoritized populations with a specific focus on the impact of psychosocial, cultural, spiritual variables that impact African-American adult males, emotionally, uh, emotional capacity and self-agency. He is considered by Huffington Post as one of the 15 black male therapists you should know. Uh, and he's currently treating patients in a clinical setting in downtown Norfolk uh, and is a psychoanalytic candidate at the Object Relations Institute in NYC. You can catch him on OshanGadsdenPhD.com, and we'd like to welcome him here to the Onyx Report. So welcome, Dr. Gadsden. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, brother. Oh, man, appreciate it. I understand I kind of conflicted with some of your teaching schedule, <laughs> so that says a lot when you're willing to kind of adjust some of that to come on, so we appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start just, you know, really at the core of your work. Tell us beyond the letter of what I read, what is your work about? Well, my work is really about, uh, I'm motivated uh, professionally. And of course, some of my work comes out of my own reflective subjectivity and my own life experience. Uh, but my work and motivation is really focused on uh, understanding and helping black men to more deeply understand and unpack the salient variables, external, uh, societal, uh, social, historical, and intrapsychic or psychological that impact their capacity to know themselves and not only com uh, impact their capacity to know themselves uh, within every dimension of their uh, being or their social identities, but also how that knowing then impacts uh, their uh, relationships and mm. how they navigate and perform in those relationships. And really my work has really shifted in this last two years to really uh, helping black men to uh, give voice uh, to their own subjectivity, their own subject, subjective experiences, uh, and really uh, giving them the, the, the stage uh, to not just rebut, uh, but really speak to and confront uh, some of the deficit models and paradigms that uh, psychological researchers, especially because that's my discipline, mm -hmm. uh, have created and touted as it relates to understanding black masculinity. Mm. Okay. Um, beautiful, powerful. Uh, what now? We're going to talk about the shift uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, because that's profound. And, and I want to kind of get to, you know, what that shift is about, because, you know, going through years of graduate work, years of training, publishing, um, there seems to be a barrier for many black men, even in the academy, to be able to kind of do the work with the kind of focus on black males that you're talking about. So I kind of want to get from your perspective, what do you think that barrier is? Like, why am I not hearing a large number of, of black male psychologists for that matter, but black psychologists doing the kind of work you're doing? What do you think the barriers are that kind of prevent that from being more widespread? 
Well, I think there are a number of things. I think that for uh, many um, black and brown psychologists even, that we are still uh, really subverted and uh, committed to white supremacist epistemologies. Mm -hmm. And those white supremacist epistemologies that uh, we call clinical uh, theories and interventions were never created, uh, normed on us, uh, or created to understand and to speak to uh, who we are and uh, what we need psychologically, culturally, and spiritually. Mm. And so I think that a large amount of us, unfortunately, are still highly invested uh, in these paradigms without really critically uh, analyzing them, deconstructing them, and resisting them. Mm. Uh, I was just talking to uh, a colleague who is the chair of FAMU, uh, Brian Sims, Dr. Brian Sims, and he was talking to me. He said, do you know, uh, my program, our department, is the only HBCU that on an undergraduate and graduate level has an explicit Afrocentric black psychology paradigm and framework uh, as a part of our curriculum. Mm. Um, and that says a, a great deal yeah. uh, be because uh, in many HBCU uh, environments, um, I critique it and people don't like to hear this, but uh, we're, we're just uh, white folks in black faces. In other words, mm -hmm. we're just perpetuating a lot of these white Eurocentric epistemologies uh, at the downfall um, of our community. So I think that that's one uh, a huge salient variable that we're still committed to white supremacy in how we understand uh, ourselves and how we uh, create our frameworks and how uh, we intervene or treat, particularly from a clinical perspective. Um, and I think we, we have to continue to talk about that. But I think the second thing that I think uh, is problematic is that um, the discussion of black masculinity in HBCUs or in higher education is permitted as long as that discussion is framed from a deficit model. Mm. As long as we are talking about black men as toxic, as long as we're talking about black men as hegemonic, as long as we are talking about men using negative language and description, mm. it seems that that is when the discussion of black masculinity is praised, is mm. lauded, is discussed. And when you as a uh, researcher is, uh, bec is is received, right? You are mm. more received, you, you get more privileges, uh, um, uh, there are more rewards given uh, to those scholars, those clinicians who really perpetuate uh, these deficit models. So I think that there are spaces where black masculinity or masculinity is being discussed, but mm -hmm. in those spaces, usually, as you know, uh, it's being discussed with uh, um, statistics that are incorrect or mm -hmm. imbalanced and really perpetuating uh, deficit uh, thinking and deficit ideas of masculinity. So I think that... Um, when you start talking the way that you're talking and uh, Tommy Curry is talking and I begin to, beginning to talk, uh, those are times or that's when individuals and departments uh, want you to be silent, mm. uh, don't find your work to be credible <laughs> mm -hmm. or as important as it might have been when you were sort of going along with the flow. Right. Definitely that. Definitely that. And that, I think, is a good segue into the discussion of the shift because it, 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 I mean it 
it's it's not a common shift for everyone to challenge white supremacy, especially in in the granular way it applies to men, black men in particular. Um, but that shift is definitely one that that people that go through it have to be very purposeful about because there's really not a lot of reinforcement from popular culture, mainstream society, or mainstream academics to do so. So if you can tell us, what was that shift for you? What spawned it? What did you experience? And how did it affect your work? And, and I ask you that because in the last couple of years, I've read, you know, a number of like, cause you'll do, you'll do these Facebook posts that are really, you know, purposeful discussions where you challenge people, men, women, people from different backgrounds, you challenge their understanding of black men by raising very pointed questions. Um, and it, it, it's, I've always been curious to know what, so what kind of spawned that for you? Well, for me, two things uh, really spawned it. First is my um, uh, shifting from a quantitative lens mm. and becoming more efficient and more interested in qualitative methodology. Uh, particularly uh, auto ethnographic uh, methodology and narrative inquiry methodology. And as you know, both of those methodologies are very reflexive in nature, that they uh, really uh, encourage and really cause researchers uh, to not divorce themselves from the research question, mm. uh, from the research participant, and to see parts of themselves even through the participants in which they are working with. And so those two models really helped me more deeply become more curious about my own understanding of myself as a black man, my social location, and really some of the things in which I was still holding on to related to worth that was attached to uh, uh, my masculinity that I had been bamboozled into believing, uh, but that was having a huge negative psychological and interpersonal impacts in my life. So I think that that personal reflexivity and really deconstructing and unpacking how I had myself internalized these negative ideas of what it means to be a black male, what it means, you know, my capacity not just my vocational capacity, but my relational capacity. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is just who you are and you're not, you know, worthy of relationships or you can't get it right. And, you know, challenging those things in my own therapy uh, was a big piece of the shift for me. I think the second shift for me, which I think you and I talked about, was that I had stopped doing clinical work for a while. Mm. And I re-entered clinical work, and uh, at the time, 95% of my caseload were black males. Okay. And in sitting with these black brothers who are mirrors of me uh, individually, and in some cases I was uh, seeing them as a couple with their romantic partners, I began to really hear narratives, right, of black boys, adolescents, and black men who uh, were uh, in pain. Mm. who were depressed, who were anxious, who were holding on to uh, ways of thinking that were incredibly informed by white supremacy around their worth, mm. around uh, uh, their capacity to love, their capacity to be loved. And then hearing lots of their developmental uh, histories around the trauma and the abuse uh, and the neglect uh, that many of them uh, encountered as a consequence of parents, uh, and in many cases, mothers. Uh, those those narratives and those patients began to help me really reconstruct and really re 
think um, some of the things in which I was reading in the popular psychological literature mm. around even the capacity of black males to even think deeply. Mm. Uh, because, you know, when you look at a lot of the psychological literature related to black males or in, in, even interventions, most of those interventions are usually behaviorally focused. And what that infers is that these men or these individuals are not thought to be able to think deeply, mm -hmm. to think spiritually, to reflexively mm -hmm. unpack their own lives. But we're going to give them these behavioral, you know, uh, interventions, sort of like one, two, three, to sort of uh, really socially control them and to mm. keep them in place. And so when I begin to, to comb through the literature and to see that there was a dearth and an absence of really investigating and really qualitative research where we hear the voices of black men and the voices of black male, male, excuse me, related to whatever topic, depression, anxiety, uh, hypermasculine, whatever the topic you, you name, when I saw that there was an absence of that as well, I said, there's a problem. And, and, and we need to, I need to begin to shift the way that I think about my scholarship and my research and, and, and really um, no longer hear the voices of white mm -hmm. uh, epistemologies and mm -hmm. really hear what black men are experiencing and what black boys are experiencing and how they make meaning of their development, et cetera, et cetera. So starting from there rather than from what you were trained with uh, initially, actually yes. starting from, and that's interesting you say that because I had a similar experience coming out of graduate school. And one of the things I first started doing when I, when I got here to Fresno State and I, I proposed to teach a black male class, I taught it from, you know, how I was trained. I was trained in terms of some of the more mainstream approaches to how we perceive black folk that are rooted in white supremacist frameworks and also from black feminist frameworks. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the black males sitting in my classes, uh, two things would happen. Over the years, the numbers of them that would take the class would drop. Mm -hmm. And the ones that were in there would sit in the back and and really not contribute much because the class little you know unbeknownst to me the way i was teaching it became kind of a punitive space it became a mm. space where they could be punished and and kind of have you know finger wagged you know in in some kind of generic general way and i didn't know that the work i had been trained to use was having that effect until i actually saw their faces listen to their stories, listen to their responses, and sometimes would just catch them in the hallways. And it was like, wow, I did not realize what impact that work could have on people. You mm. know, so it's interesting you say that. Um, mm. Now, it, it, in terms of the direction you're going in now, what are you finding um, that you didn't expect to find? What, what are you finding more of as, as you hear from black boys or black men for that matter? What what are some of the things that you're, you're if you can, you know, I don't I don't know what the parameters around are around, you know, the kind of work you're doing in terms of uh, uh, working with people intimately in regard to um, uh, psychotherapy. But what can you share about what you're finding? Yeah, a, a couple of themes keep coming up uh, in working with black boys and black men. Uh, one is a tremendous amount of. Um, hmm, ambiguity 
about what they should be doing. In other words, what role they should be playing. Uh, and when I talk, when I'm, what I mean by that is I'm, I'm sort of inferring around gender role, right? Identity. Mm-hmm. And the tremendous uh, responsibility and guilt and pressure that many black boys and males feel as it relates to what they are responsible to do or how they're responsible to behave within family units, within their romantic relationships that are in some way a consequence of the socialization process of boys and men in general. But of course, the layered piece of what how uh, masculinity can socialize within the black community. Mm. So I hear a lot of confusion and dissonance. I, 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 this theme kept coming up, um, brother, that really I was amazed by uh, the theme uh, of black men often telling me that they don't feel cared for, mm-hmm. that they often feel like objects to their spouses, to mm. their mothers, mm. uh, to their sisters. And I kept hearing mm-hmm. this. I was like, wow, this is powerful. And mm. that people always want something from them, mm. but no one ever asked them, how you doing, brother? Absolutely. No one ever asked them Absolutely. what they can do for them. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of anguish, a lot of... Um, uh, ambiguity about uh, am I supposed to be taking up all of these roles even when these roles are negatively impacting me psychologically, physiologic, uh, on a physiological level as well mm-hmm. and then of course uh, where is there space for me to get my needs met when everyone is assuming that I should be taking up their concerns. Uh, I, I, the third thing if I may and the last thing, uh, well there are a number of things that come up but uh, this issue of unresolved trauma Mm. Uh, with their mothers, they're lo- and this ranges when I from me seeing adolescents to men that are in their sixties, right? I remember having a patient who was a pilot, uh, professor in New York, very established, and uh, uh, after six or seven sessions, the the themes uh, and the focus was on his mother who had been deceased for many years, yeah. but he was still holding on to a lot of the. Uh, uh, dissonance and confusion and the complexity of their relationships, uh, the pressure that he felt, uh, and that really impacted how he saw himself uh, as a man and his capacity to uh, tolerate adult relationships. And so uh, that theme, and even with teenagers and adolescents around, you know, how it is that I've internalized my mother and femininity and how that internalization has impacted uh, my capacity to really feel safe in my relationships mm-hmm. uh, as adults. Absolutely. Uh, just a quick announcement uh, for those who would like to call in and speak to Dr. Oshan Godsden and myself. Uh, call in number is 310-928-7733. Again, 310-928-7733. Now, um, that's, that's profound. That's profound. So you're having these men telling you about the you know the relationship between gender roles, the roles they play, and how they're they're not necessarily getting what they need. What I found dealing with, uh, I started a group uh, supporting young black men. And I think I had it going when you were actually here living in Fresno. Uh, the, but, uh, the group I started at Fresno State that was actually called the Onyx Black Male Collective. These young, young brothers, one we had a, a conversation one evening. 
And I asked them in regard to intimate partner relationships, I said, how many of you have women that can give you in-depth lists about their expectations, their needs, their wants in a relationship? And all of them, of course, raised their hand and I let them give examples. And some of them got real detailed from penis length to income to, you know, and one of the things I found is that almost to a man, it definitely over 95% of them had women say they wanted men with three-figure incomes. Now, these are 17 to 21-year-old black males at a state university. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So for yeah. you to actually have someone, have almost every woman you run across tell you she's expecting a six-figure income and you're in college living wow. in a dorm, that's an interesting dynamic. But the crux of what I'm saying at this point, though, is that when I ask them, how many of you have expectations, uh, needs, things you have prepared to articulate to a woman you're interested in? How many of you have those things on the forefront of your mind, listed out somewhere in a way where you can say them? Not one hand went mm -hmm. in the air. Mm -hmm. it, it, have you seen anything like that in terms of what your, your research has found? Uh, yes, all, all the time. Uh, you know, I think that there are uh, the study that I am, let me just uh, start with the data that I'm collecting now, uh, looking at the role or the relationship between uh, the socialization of gender uh, and its impact on emotional intimacy. Uh, and what we've, uh, with black men who are in non-marital relationships, really looking at cohabitating versus non-cohabitating and seeing if there are any uh, uh, differences uh, in uh, those two groups. Uh, and, and what we found in the literature is that this idea of uh, uh, emotional intimacy, the capacity of black men to share uh, what they need, often they don't do it because they've already gotten messages from multiple external sources, the media, mm -hmm. multiple external sources, their parents, multiple external sources, their lover, their partners, mm -hmm. uh, multiple external sources, history that first of all, you're not seen, or if you're seen, you're seen for a particular purpose, and that mm. purpose is to meet a financial need or even an emotional need of someone else. And uh, that bl many black men don't believe that they will be heard uh, because when they do share themselves or become vulnerable in spaces, that it has negative uh, 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 impacts. Mm -hmm. they're, 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 they get uh, sort of, uh, there's no rewards for mm -hmm. really showing up and being vulnerable uh, with uh, their romantic partners or with anyone because in that vulnerability, people then tap into their stereotypes around the fact like, why are you being vulnerable? This is not masculine. This is not what mm -hmm. a man does. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're sort of like in this catch 22 where you when you do you are then uh, uh, um, blasted because you're not performing uh, sort of normative gender roles. But when you don't, then you are blasted as being deficit, right? And that you don't have the capacity to do those things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's what some of the things that I'm that I'm that I'm finding in some of the clinical work and uh, the study in which we're doing uh, conducting. Excuse me now. And it's understandable how it can be so widespread because from popular culture to academics to, you know, you name the genre, there's a very similar message about blackness, about maleness, so definitely about black maleness. Uh, there's a very consistent set of tropes uh, that play out and that impact us on a widespread basis. Um, you know, and I think in many ways it even justifies our institutional treatment 
whether mm. you're talking about institutions where there's you know therapy and counseling or whether you're talking about institution in terms of incarceration right yes um you know I, i've talked to many uh, a, a married man going through marital ca- counseling and mm. one of the consistent responses i get is how even in that framework counseling it's done from say a feminist standpoint so the, the question they, they initially get asked at some point in the first couple sessions is along the lines of um, what is it you've done to her you know what I mean rather than there being some kind of di- you know di- discussion about what's going on in the marriage the perspective is from her vantage point and that you know and, and you know so that so from that vantage point you kind of you hear that very colloquially but then we can go back to what I pointed out uh, about the former Black Panther, uh, who uh, Albert Woodfox, who spent 43 years in solitary confinement. That seems acceptable when it mm. comes to how Black men, you know, experience incarceration. You know what I mean? Those kinds of things. And, and they really come from a similar source in terms of perceptions of Black men in either mm. context. Even, even for those who, you know, for those who follow my page, my uh, my so social media again. I posted a little while back ago about uh, the 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 R and B group TLC and the mm. song they had out years ago, No Scrubs, and <laughs> and I was uh, you know I was laughing about it because I didn't know that there was a rap group that had come out with a response song that was mm. just as problematic. Um, I think it was more <laughs> East Coast based because I had never heard it, but. But the point I'm getting at is even to this day, No Scrubs is kind of like an anthem. Mm-hmm. And and it really, you know, it really reveals this relationship between the mainstream and, you know, really perceptions of anti-black misandry. And, yeah. and, and I've seen it even play out on my campus. We had a retreat for incoming students and the, the, the women who were at a ratio of like 28 to five, you know, it was 28 sisters for the five brothers that we brought in for these students to become acclimated on campus and come in as freshmen. They and the black female staff are singing the anthem out loud, dancing in the hallways to No Scrubs. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this is, it it was so widespread. These women weren't even born yet, but all of them had the song committed to memory, right? So, So what I'm getting at is it just seems to be widespread from so many different angles, this, this kind of notion that black males are to be scorned, they're not to be trusted. And and so from that vantage point, coming from a clinical, you know, therapy kind of therapist kind of framework, psychotherapist framework, what do you regard as a solution to that, especially not only on a larger scale, but even in intimate relationships? How do you what do you say to people in regard to what can be done? Man, as you were talking, I was just, I know we can't see each other. My head is just shaking and shaking uh, because uh, I see it all the time in clinical uh, context. Uh, I think one of the discussions before I talk about how I see it in the clinical context and what I try to do in my clinical work is uh, we really, I think, have to explicitly um, and radically disrupt this notion that femininity equals rightness Mm. and and that womanhood uh, uh, because you are a woman or identify as a woman, that that gives you some special nurturing right power uh, that puts you, that puts everybody else in just position to uh, your morality, and that everything else outside of you has to be wrong as, by virtue of not being a woman. So wow. I think we really have to 
confront that, no matter how hard it is and how hard the conversations, that women are wounded too. Mm. And that and that the wounds of women are not always at the uh, and that is a consequence of black patriarchy, which doesn't exist, but I'm mm. just using the term that we all often hear, yes. are, that, are, are as a consequence of black men mm-hmm. or black males, and that they can be just as insidiously unwhole as anyone else, and that they have to be responsible and accountable for that as well. So mm-hmm. I think that the way that I translate that sort of framework of that idea in my clinical work, particularly when I'm uh, uh, treating uh, couples, is to have both couples own that. Mm. So to have them really begin to sit with that uh, discomfort uh, and reality that both of them have negatively impacted this union, mm. perhaps in different ways, perhaps from mm-hmm. different motivations, psychological mm-hmm. motivations and cultural motivations, right. that both have to sit and stand in accountability. And then I also try when I'm working with couples to do what I call a constant aligning with mm. black males. And sometimes that pisses the, the, the girlfriend or the wife off uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know, but, because, you know, many times the, the couple is coming at the behest of the woman yeah. or because she's threatened the relationship to end it uh, or it's her idea. So in many times I have first to get black brothers to invest in the process mm. to agree to the process because they already are coming in brother saying and feeling just what you said mm. that you are going to align with her that it makes no difference what i say that i'm going to be the bad guy here and so i have to constantly explicitly tear down that framework in the session in a way that's empathetic to both parties but in a way that really disrupts this idea that everything you say as the as the wife or the girlfriend is right and that his perspective is is, is wrong inherently uh, and so right is inherently wrong and you know some some women have walked out Mm. Uh, some women have said, uh, this is my last session. Um, but, wow. but, but what I like about it is I, I certainly feel like I'm ethical and I'm not uh, uh, attempting to uh, wound any woman. Mm. But what I am attempting to do is, is to bring what we've been talking about theoretically in the context of this relationship and help them to heal the impacts of how white supremacy has impacted their vision of the other. Mm. Uh, and the complicity in that vision yeah. of, of of not being able to see it and, yeah. and to see the other more deeply. That's powerful. That is powerful, man. I, I know that you. I know. I know it's probably spawned some 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 papers just looking at people's responses to that. <laughs> I mean, if you have people getting up and walking out, I know it's 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 inspired some writings that you've done on that. Um, but you, but this is so. This is part of the recent shift in the last few years. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Wow. And because I think before then I was bamboozled too, mm-hmm. <laughs> Me teaching too? my my black masculinity course the same way you talked about the way you were teaching it in the beginning too, mm-hmm. and uh, you know wagging the finger and trying to prove something or trying to help them, you know, recover or get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and of course, you know. Uh, from a psychological level, I was sort of projecting 
right? Wow. And displacing to my black, my black male students. Now, what's interesting though, brother, that in the way that I've shifted the class now is that when I give them, so I sign your paper, right? Uh, your article, your famous article uh, to students and uh, 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 Tommy Curry's uh, articles to students. And I'll be using his textbook this semester actually as the main text. Beautiful. But when, I, when I've assigned your readings, now the, um, <laughs> the reaction from black men are, is very curious because they have a mm -hmm. hard time even hearing about themselves, right? Yes. And seeing themselves in a positive light. Yeah. And so it's, it creates an emotional juxtaposition or dissonance within them that, you know, how could he say that? How could he write it? You know, it is, so I have to spend a lot of time really uh, unpacking um, how they have internalized these negative ideas about themselves yeah. and how that internalization is so powerful that they can't even tolerate a new vision. Mm. Mm. about who they are well it's it's such a break i think for from everything else that they're learning to, to find a space where they're actually not being pathologized and and they're hearing from black men who are writing about their experience but from that different base that different epistemological base it's jarring for many i mean i've had some that would be quiet for the first month just trying to see if it was a ploy <laughs> but, <laughs> But I actually also found um, um, that the other part to it that I think was useful is that it began to shift the conversation. So they would they would eventually, once they figured out I wasn't playing, <laughs> they would begin to speak up and they found that their experiences were not immediately dismissed the way they were used to. And that kind of you know motivated them to participate more. But I found also a different response from the women who had been ensconced in black feminist narratives, actually asking new kinds of questions. I'll give you an example. I actually had one this past semester in the spring. She was also at the same time as taking my black male class, she was taking a Chicano literature class and they were doing a similar kind of, you know, uh, anti-Chicano misandry, um, you know, kind of analysis of, of a particular piece they were reading. And so she, actually started to challenge the gender politics of their critique of Chicano literature in regard to how men were treated. And she said mm. the, the male professor was shocked mm. and the male students were shocked. And she said over the course of a semester, they all started to participate on a different set of terms because mm. the, it, the, you know what I mean? The, the, the paradigm had been shifted Shift. mm -hmm. and it allowed for a humanity that you know men of color in general but especially black men are not necessarily used to have you seen anything like that happening in your classes man yeah yeah or even online because you're also online quite oh a lot. oh don't get me started online you know how many friends i've lost uh or associates <laughs> i've lost with asking questions man mm. uh a question and then uh coming back and after getting an answer or response following up and asking them to clarify or consider uh, mm -hmm. a, a different perspective. Um, I had one uh, a woman who said to me, 
you know, every post you have, you know, you, you're destroying the black community. Wow. Uh, because, and I said, I'm destroying the black community because I'm saying that let them let men, black men talk for themselves. Let's mm. hear the subjective experience of black men. I'm destroying the black community because I say to you as a woman, I don't agree with your stance. And I think that some of your politics or your ways of seeing this thing are probably also uh, rooted in some of your own res unresolved stuff. And might you be curious about that? That's divisive to the black community. So, I mean, we get all sorts of reactions to questions and conversations online that I've learned not to take personally and learn to understand that I'm triggering a lot of people, mm. that the questions are really triggering unresolved stuff and, and, and unresolved internalizations of black masculinity, that even the most well-meaning black women and men are still holding on to that they yeah. still see themselves from these deficit lens and deficit models. And when you critique that or encourage them to be curious about seeing it a different way, it disrupts how they see themselves. In the classroom, I had an uh, example last semester. This was really challenging for me, and I'd love to talk to you about it uh, offline and maybe get some advice around it. I had my first, ex uh, 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 I say explicit, I don't know if that's the right language, trans woman student. Mm. in my class okay. and she was very challenging in the sense that she uh had had her own organization in atlanta she was an older woman well older than most students maybe her, uh. her mid-teens and so she came with a lot of activist practical experience mm -hmm. uh but she also came with a a, a, a feminist lens yeah and we yeah. would go back and forth and she said you know this is the first time i've ever had femi a feminist framework critiqued yeah. Uh, and the critique makes sense. But, you know, uh, my sort of difficulty with that course and engaging her was around her social uh, her social identity and her social location uh, and sort of like how does that how do I stand in that just position to my masculinity or sense of masculinity and you sort of you know um, she lives her life obviously now as a woman but for a long time she identified uh, or lived as a black man a black mm -hmm. male so she's coming with values or a, a sort of a perception from both senses of self if that makes any sense or gender right. identities right um but she was so hard on black men she right. was so negative on black men and a lot of that um that negativity and hardness as we uh, sort of unpack that in a way that wasn't like she was in therapy because that sometimes i have to sort of you know and i know you do that with your group as well try to make sure that the boundary is set right but, you know it's hard right. sometimes you know, right. um, but we realized uh, she came to understand and, and really uh, uh, emoted that a lot of it has to do with how she was treated related to her sexual identity mm -hmm. uh, and her gender identity um, around being transgendered and how she's holding a lot of that animosity and that shame and that anger. And she projects it sometimes into how she theorizes black masculinity. Sure, sure. And, and in many ways that that's framed in how she's learned what black femininity was. The yes. critique of black men is part of the framework for what black femininity is. I mean, she's clearly working from a model of black womanhood. It doesn't sound like she just developed it in a vacuum, Absolutely. but it's interesting to see how that critique is part of the dynamic. And she hadn't considered another way of looking at black men until you introduced it. Yeah. And, and this is one of the conversations I know you've had it a lot 
with black feminists uh, and, you know, a continued push for them and all of us. And I, I was writing something about cultural activism, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about it from a metaphysical perspective and really thinking about the unconscious uh, motivations and valiances that, uh, um, that drive us to the types of scholarship and the type of work that we do. Mm -hmm. And what I'm insisting that we do, particularly black feminists, is to really reflexively think about how their own subjective experiences with their fathers, their uncles, yeah. preachers, whoever have been in their lives, has uh, motivated them to create a theoretical conformatory bias framework mm. <laughs> that gets uh, intellectualized, but that much of the framework is really um, uh, uh, motivated by unresolved emotional uh, um, uh, stuff, material, mm -hmm. that needs to be more deeply hashed out. And so what I mean by that is, you know, this all or nothing idea of masculinity, this rigid idea of masculinity and inflexibility. Oh, hold on. I'm not getting any sound. Okay, hold on. Hello? Hello? Okay, I, I, some sound cut out. I didn't hear the last part of what you said. Yeah, I was saying that uh, for some black feminists, when you think about their rigidity uh, and their inability to take in the complexity of black masculinity, right? Mm. Uh, on some level, if they were my patient, but even mm. if they're not, if we were having discussions, I would have them to be more curious about whether or not that inflexibility of taking in the complexity of a black male mm. has to do with unresolved feelings oh. around themselves never being taken in, their complexity, or their unresolved relationships with other black men in their lives mm -hmm. that that they that their work is used to project or mm -hmm. their work is used in some way they think to heal or to speak to feelings of shame or mm -hmm. or feelings of not having control or you know feelings of being hurt etc cetera, etc cetera. um because i think the feminists were right when they said that the personal is political and i don't think a lot of people really take that in that mm. your political work that your activism that your academic work and that's why i uh so enjoy qualitative methodology uh because that, that methodology causes the researcher to always consider what they are bringing to the research enterprise and mm. how that is impacting how they ask questions what questions they ask what they observe, what they choose not to observe. And so right. I think we have to have more explicit conversations about that. Well, I think it's it's interesting because this is why a lot of what I do is dealing more with the social environment on a macro level because when you talk about their experiences, especially in regard to the men they grew up with, you know what I mean? There are some environmental issues, you know, policies that have been passed, you know, past economic conditions we've lived in, you know, home, uh, homelessness, lack of employment that have been extremely pronounced in the black uh, community, mo most particularly for black males and in ways that we don't see mirrored in other communities. I mean, really, even in terms of, of income, black men are the only men that make less than their women when you account for incarceration, when you control for incarceration. So there's a there's a there's some environmental factors that kind of play into why so many of us have had similar experiences. Like in my generation, 
it, it got very quickly to a point where you were almost lucky to meet someone that grew up with both parents. Mm. And the interpretation of that ended up kind of being this shorthand, well, black men are trifling. But there are some, you know, critical reasons. And, and I've been doing, you know, research around this to help kind of provide a narrative to explain that. But that contributes to it. But one thing I also found interesting is you and I kind of had inverse experiences that that led us to similar conclusions, but came from different routes. Um, mm. my, my training was qualitative. Mm. But, you know, I was introduced to the quantitative and that kind of facilitated the shift, the shift for me, because wow. when I when I say qualitative, you know, again, I'm trained by black feminists. I'm trained by, you know, various scholars in Africana studies and cultural studies. And a lot of their work would be, you know, very, uh, you know, kind of um, off the hip social analyses that come out of private and personal experiences. And I had not been introduced to data that showed me on a wire. So one of the things I talked about in the first show was I would hear people, you know, give me a breakdown of say, you know, incarceration in the black community, but nobody would, and I'm talking about in my graduate courses, but nobody would actually show me the raw numbers of black men mm. and women incarcerated. So they, I would hear, well, the rates of incarceration are higher for the women and this is how bad it is in the black community. But then when you see the numbers, like in, two, I think in 2013, it was over over 900,000 black males, over 700,000 now. And that number really didn't go down. It's just the number of men who were sent home with ankle bracelets on. But you, you had almost a million black men incarcerated, and yet you had about 65,000 sisters. But nobody ever told me that difference, you know, while I was in graduate school. So I just took the word of the, the professors who I had a great deal of respect for at face value without knowing that there's a there's a quantitative space that can kind of be manipulated uh, in a very particular way. And if you can actually look at it, it, it will help make sense. Uh, like, for example, you know, um, recently, I want to say what I think is late July, there was an article put out by Madame Noir. Mm. And it, it, it is called Black Women Can No Longer Afford to Save Broken Black Men. Now, I wasn't I wasn't, you know, I didn't I didn't read the article. I didn't even really want to talk about it because I don't want to give them any traffic. But I think it's important because I'm making a point. It was written by a woman named Ara Loa Bugichukwu, and I'm sure I wrecked her last name. But she basically presents a couple of individual instances where black mm -hmm. women were killed by black men. And she had like one little, you know, link to a, a site that said, you know that black men had killed black women, and you know, and 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 twice numbers, bless, bless. And 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 what I found is that was very reminiscent of the kind of training that I had gotten in graduate school. It's very mm -hmm. kind of manipulative when you look at it because when you actually look at what she's saying, there's a couple of things that you that makes that really begin to make sense when you look at the data, right? She in in the article she actually doesn't give you any raw numbers of the numbers of black men and women killed every year in intimate partner homicidal relationships. She doesn't, there's no raw numbers. Um, she uses the individual stories, and this is what my teachers would do as well. Like if, they, if we were talking about rape in class, they'd bring a woman in to talk about her experience having been raped, and then at the end of the class, you know, kind of wag their fingers at black men in, in terms of you got to stop other black men from doing this. But no critical analysis about how rape is happening in the black community and what men actually experience. It's the same thing in this article. She used an FBI study that focused on 11 states. 
Whereas, it, it, you know, I have an, uh, a blog piece up that I'll link uh, for my people on YouTube. And for those that are listening on YouTube, please go ahead and like the video and subscribe. Uh, and I will put in, in the uh, description box a link to an article where I actually go through some of these numbers in more depth. I use CDC information, which is a little different because the FBI's information is based on convictions. The CDC's information is based on a reporting system, a national violent death reporting system that actually uses 27 states as opposed to 11, right? And the differences you find is that the numbers are most of the time are range around 50 to 70, um, you know, black males and black women killed. This last year was actually, or I should say the, the latest year in the report is 2016. It's, it's at its highest in terms of almost under 200 black women and a little bit half as much as that for black males. But what people overlook is this is out of 43 million black people. So whether you're talking about 40, 50, 60, 70, or even 190 men and 190 women or whatever, you're talking about a population of 43 million. So, you know, and, and what I'll hear this come from are articles that are saying, you know, black women are being killed in mass, you know, they, no, this is not happening in mass. The rates yes. are actually fairly low. As one colleague put it to me, you're more likely to die in a flood or be struck by lightning than killed by your intimate partner. And the rates in the black community have been consistently almost uh, uh, bi-directional. They're bi-directional in terms of the rates going back and forth. But the article just presents 2016, a couple of individual stories. I have data that goes back to 2003 that'll kind of help you situate this. But see, that's the kind of... Uh, when I talk about the mainstream influence on how we perceive each other, we're informed by articles like this, television shows, films, uh, uh, treatment and carceral practices, uh, mm -hmm. academic uh, courses and, 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 and curriculums, hell, even popular culture. I mean, we know that Toni Morrison just passed, um, mm -hmm. you know, peace be to her and her family. Um, a profound writer. I've, I've gotten some 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 insights from her work, but at the same time, I had I took issue with some of her, you know, some of the ways she represented black men in her work, and she came out mm -hmm. at a period uh, with others, you know, whether you're talking about the Terry McMillans or whether you're talking about the Alice Walkers, you know, she came out at a time period and became prominent where being a black feminist and critiquing black men in a very particular way meant advancement. And we have to know how to talk about that and connect that to the other practices that we're looking at that reinforce this same bubble that mm. teaches people that the only way to properly assess black men and women is to critique black men as inhuman monsters and black women as inherently good. And we see this dynamic in the larger society in terms of how womanhood is defined. Mm. But in these black spaces, I think it's magnified in a particular way um so i mean so i just kind of wanted to put that out there you know going uphill and fighting against the narrative when the narrative is so prominent in so many different spaces it's easy to come across people that live in, in that kind of social bubble that kind of uh, epistemological bubble that kind of worldview that isn't challenged much of the time because it's reinforced from all these different areas Absolutely. you know what i mean and so Absolutely. that's a very challenging engagement um have you seen yeah. anything like that? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's very challenging. And as you know, uh, you get beat up for it. Oh, yeah. There there are huge implications. Almost sometimes it feels like even physical implications uh, to, uh, to really challenging and disrupting this idea uh, of sainthood 
equals womanhood or womanhood equals sainthood mm-hmm. uh, and that and that women and particularly black women in this case don't have a responsibility to uh to really challenge their own unresolved um uh, lives and to think deeply about how that unresolved material in their life impacts their capacity to take black men or black males in in a mm-hmm. positive ways or or, or how that unresolvement really perpetuates mm. more of the relational drama that they are experiencing. You know, wow. even when she uses this thing, this, you know, uh, it's really slick, right? When she starts off this article and she says, you know, she's, she, she's not in the business anymore of coddling people from yes. this, particularly or especially black men. And it's like, well, what is truth? Like, wh- why is it that you get to decide First of all, what is the truth that you're talking about? Because I, I don't know what the truth is. And it sounds like you already have an idea of what that truth is that you get to define without having any discussion of, of with black men or black males about whether or not they buy into that truth or whether or not that truth resonates related to their own subjective experience. Mm. So, I mean, she's coming from, she's coming f- at this, you know, really uh, uh, positioning black femininity as the answer the victim first right. and the answer you know how you know, how are you the victim and then you have the answers to how to get out of victimhood mm. and that in order for black men to uh become responsible that they have to take her answer right mm. in order for them to become whole so you're you're unwhole because you're writing from a place to me and this is the psychologist in me the the writing is really emotionally loaded so you're right. coming from a place where you're writing from such an emotional load which has so many negative emotions attached to it how can you clearly see okay you can't you can't there's no way that you can't be distorted in the ways in which you are perceiving black masculinity if you are still unresolved. I hate to interrupt you, brother, but see, this is my fault because I get carried away with the discussion and we got to go. But I want to thank you for being on the show. (laughs) And I want you guys to follow OshanGadsdenPhD.com Also, you can follow me on Facebook under Dr. T. Hassan Johnson or under Lord Hassan on Twitter. Uh, But definitely follow the brother's work. And and if you can, friend him and engage in the dialogues he engages in. Read his work. Look up his publication record. The brother is doing some powerful work. Thank you again for joining the Onyx Report. And we look forward to seeing you in, I think this will be on the 21st with Dr. Ronald Neal uh, as we will interview him, scholar in religion. So look forward to that. All right. Thank you for for joining us.